0: CNN. Radio. Uh, I'm asking a universal question this morning. This is CNN Where Profiles, and I hope it's not too late to ask this question. Where did you spend Christmas Day? Did you spend Christmas Day in jail? Christmas is passed, but Reverend J.M. Gates is concerned. I yes didn't see church. No. Yeah. Wasn't in Sunday school. Wasn't well. uh-huh. me From the 1920s through the early part of World War II, Reverend Gates recorded about 200 sermons. Day. Well. I'm talking the 25th day of December. Well. In and, well. and the company that signed him to preach on those vinyl cylinders was Columbia Records. Talking to you! Yeah. you midnight rambler! Right. But we're not going to focus on the spoken word for the next half hour, even though when Thomas Edison invented the phonograph back in the 1870s, he thought that would be the primary use of the record player, the spoken word. We're going to focus on the music with American historian Sean Wilentz. Wilentz has just written a sweeping history of Columbia Records' 125 years in the recording industry. It's called 360 Sound, and if you listen to this conversation through the buds of your iPod, well, maybe Thomas Edison wasn't too far off. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder, Sean Wilentz. Welcome to CNN Profiles. Michael, great to be here. Right now, I'm looking at your book, and I see this guy with a big beard and a military uniform who, when he was a kid, dreamed of running away to the circus, and his father said, right. no, 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 you got to get into the Marines. and this is what it produced. So let's let's hear this recording, and uh, I think some of our audience will recognize it if they give it a few seconds. Let's see.
1: And that, of course, is Washington Post March, I believe. Uh, it's the Marine Band. John Philip Sousa's Marine Band, although um, you couldn't tell from that that it's without John Philip Sousa. It is without John Philip Sousa? Exactly. Uh, Sousa, the Columbia Recording Company, was based in Washington, D.C. That's where it got its name from, Columbia, District of Columbia, and uh, you know, their, their first early uh, hit singers, if you will, were whistlers and yodelers, things of that variety, people who could um, appear, uh, could, could sound strong enough on the primitive technology of the day, which was all mechanical, had no electronics to it. Let me, let me stop here, because um, wh-
0: whistlers and yodelers, yep. and I understand they could only press one album at a time, and then the whistler or the yodeler would, would have to perform it all over again for a second pressing and again for a third pressing, is that right?
1: Absolutely. Fortunately, you know, well, stamina was as important as quality um, um, uh, in, in these recordings. Um, yes. No, you're absolutely right. Each cylinder would have to be recorded individually. Um, so you'd have uh, these performers, whistlers, yodelers, singers as well, performing the same thing over and over and over again. You can imagine how tedious that was. In time, they figured out ways to have more than one machine running at once, um, and in times they would ha- come up with molds for these cylinders so that you didn't have to do that, although even they were not that efficient. But yes, that's what exactly what happened. There's, there's a man named John Attlee, who was a great whistler. He'd set up in his parlor, and he'd just set up these machines, and people would come, and he'd sing. You know, He'd, he'd whistle some tune of the day over and over and over again.
0: Stamina as important. It's, it's like
1: working in 24-hour news. <laughs> you could see it that way, uh, but but it, it, the only difference is that even with twenty-four hour news, things change. You know, imagine doing you know "You Are My Sunshine" uh, hundred and fifty times. It, it would be taxing. Well, but
0: but but you'd have a sense of optimism with those lyrics. <laughs> I guess you would. Um, but even that, I think, after a while, even that begins to become tedious. That could be. Well, listen, uh, there, there's something I want to play another song for you, and then I want you to tell us the significance of this and, and this starts to get into I mean, well this is from let's see 1920 is the year
1: I've been away from you a long time I never thought I'd miss you so Somehow I feel Your love was
0: real Near you I long to be The birds are singing It is long time well, you know, you know what song that is, correct?
1: It's Swanee, um, sung by Al Jolson, um, and written by George Gershwin. Now, Al Jolson is known, and probably best to to, to listeners out there, uh, from the jazz singer as a b- blackface performer. Um, And indeed, long before that movie, at the end of the uh, um, 19-teens, had already made his reputation on Broadway as the greatest blackface performer in the country. Now, in our more enlightened era, that all looks pretty tacky, pretty horrible, pretty racist. But, you know, if you listen to that song, you get a sense of how that recording, you get a sense of how complicated Jolson's performances were. But it's, it's the conjunction of two things. I mean, Jolson is, a, is, a, is, a, is an immigrant, and um, it's George Gershwin. Uh, the Jewish George Gershwin is, is writing the thing. Um, what you're seeing is the entry into the recording um, industry, or it's becoming the recording industry, of immigrants. And uh, it's funny. Swanee is, is maybe an all-American song, but it was written by an immigrant and made famous by an immigrant, and it's telling you about a very new America that's common.
0: And, and what is that new America that he's singing about in the song?
1: Well, it's not so he, he, he's singing about um um you know long ago and far away that's very much in the um, um american minstrel tradition but the um both the intonation i mean listen to that i mean that that guy is not from swanee <laughs> the guy who's singing that song is not from um down south he's a new yorker he's a new york jewish immigrant he sounds like a new york Jew- jewish immigrant um so it, it's less in the in the words but in in the jazzy rhythms um, uh, which is
0: which is all Gershwin, and in, in Jolson's performance, which is which is all Jolson. And so you're talking about a new opportunity for immigrants, and and, and now we're going to get into what kind of opportunity, or perhaps lack of opportunity, uh, this presented for African Americans, because when uh, mm-hmm. when people hear this next voice. Uh, again, some people will, re- will recognize it. You'll walk us through it, but but let's listen to this uh, story, which is really based on uh, something that's happening all the time, still in America, on a big flood, and uh, this woman is singing about a flood. So let's listen to it.
1: When it rained five days, in the skies turned dark at night. When
0: it rained. Night. So trouble in the lowlands, and, and it's getting more and more dangerous to live in the lowlands, but uh, that is uh, the singer, uh, the year is 1927, and why don't you tell us the rest? Well, the year is 1927. A lot of uh,
1: songs were cut by um, a number of companies about uh, floods because that was the year of the great 1927. Louisiana, Mississippi floods, Mississippi river floods, and that is Bessie Smith's version. Um, She had already been recording for Columbia since 1923. She was the empress of the blues already at that point. And, uh, you know, she came to the company in part because there was a guy at Columbia named Frank Buckley Walker, um, who's going to be very important in the company's history very early on, who remembered the singer that he heard during World War I when he was stationed down in Selma, Alabama, um, he sent a friend out to find her. He found her in Philadelphia, brought her to New York, and the rest is musical history.
0: And, and so was Columbia Records indeed a place where African-Americans, uh, Negroes at the time, could find opportunity? Mm-hmm. And was it one of the few well, places?
1: The, well, there there had been efforts to um, uh, record Black singers, performers, Black Swan Records had bro- broken in, so there was a, it was on the radar, and uh, really, actually, a, a song by Mamie Smith, no relation to Bessie Smith, that came out in 1920 called Crazy Blues, on uh, on, on a then independent label that Columbia is going to uh, obtain, OK Records. Um, the the popularity of that suggested that there was an audience for this kind of music that went far beyond the rather limited um, um, black audience, uh, you know, uh, record-buying audience. And seeing that, there was a kind of a a, a move. They were trying to find the next Mamie Smith. Well, the next Mamie Smith turned out to be Bessie Smith, who far exceeded what, what, what Mamie was going to be able to do. So, you know, this is in 1923. This is pretty early on. This is before the phenomenon of so-called race records, which comes in a couple of years later where um, there were specific lines of records that were uh, mostly of black performers, all of black performers, that were specifically marketed for black audiences. There was a segregation of the record catalog, if you will. Uh, But this is before that. Um, Even before that happens, Bessie Smith is on the label, on the Columbia label. Um, Columbia's not the only record label that records black artists. By by no means are they alone. They just seem to have,
0: um, you know, many of the best. I want to play this song for you because it feels in some ways so modern, even though it was uh, 1932 was when it was recorded. But listen to the lyric. man reef-a-man. if he says he swam to china and he sell you south carolina then you know you're talking to that Reaper man have you ever met funny Reaper man
1: have you ever met funny Reaper man if he says he walks
0: the ocean anytime he takes a notion then you know you're talking to people man have you ever met that funny? It occurred to me, this is like, this could be the Colorado State theme song now.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, marijuana has had its ups and downs since
0: 1932. That's Cap Calloway, right? Am, that, I, am that, I right that, about that? that? That is Cat Calloway. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and it did make me think of Amendment 64, which just passed in Colorado, legalizing the recreational use of marijuana. But uh, uh, it is Cat Calloway. What was significant about him? Well, Cab
1: Calloway was uh, a band leader of, of of great skill and great popularity, um, but he was also what he was he was an entertainer of, uh, 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 in his own right. He would do these kinds of songs, "Reefer Man" being one. But he became the "Heidi Ho" man. You may know him best. Uh, listeners today may know him best as the "Heidi Ho" man. You know, "Heidi, Heidi, Heidi Ho," and he had a performance to him. He was long before Michael Jackson. Um, Cab Calloway was doing the moonwalk. Uh, and that was all part of his, of his performance in a way that, you know, is, is, is quite familiar to anybody who knows anything about African-American culture. There's, it's not just about the performance. It can be also about dancing. And be, you integrate a lot of different things into your act. Um, think of the, 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 well, Michael Jackson's a good example or, or Little Richard a little bit, you know, somewhat earlier. And Cab Calloway is the kind of big band version of all of that. And um, um, he is extraordinarily popular um, in the 1930s.
0: This is CNN Profiles. We're talking to author Sean Wilentz about his new book on the 125th anniversary of Columbia Records. And we've been listening to a lot of music, and clearly this music just didn't pop up out of nowhere. It required uh, some business people and some producers to recognize it and say, this is going to make money. Who was responsible? Who had the eye and the creativity? And at this point uh, in the 1920s and 30s, was Columbia a very profitable business?
1: Well, um, the answer to the last question is, is most of the time, much of the time, no. Um, but, but back up about the, um, the, 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 the producers and so forth. Um, from the very beginning, Columbia, well, Edward Easton was not a man who was much interested in music. Um, he was interested in making money. He saw music recording as a way to do that. Um, uh, that's, what, that's what this is all about. He, they could understand, they could recognize a, a, a good seller, a, a top seller, um, but they were not primarily interested in, in, in making those kinds of cultural contributions. Colombia, however, once it moves to New York um, um, in the year just before World War I, began to pick up people who were much more interested, like Frank Buckley Walker, um, much more interested in finding um, especially popular performers of great excellence, and they would scour the countryside to do that. Columbia was not alone. Victor, their great um, competitor, did this as well. But Columbia was very active, and it seemed to have, um, be blessed with, Producers is not quite the right word, although that's, that's the word you attach to it. They're really talent scouts, um, uh, men who are out there around the country as well as in New York City who are trying to find uh, the best talent they can and bring them to Columbia Records and you know, make, make the idea of being a Columbia recording artist a big deal. Um, so Walker brings in Smith, but then um, there are two Englishmen, in fact, um, Don Law and Art Satherley, who are going to be responsible for uh, some of the most extraordinary um, recordings in Columbia's history. Columbia itself, though, you weren't necessarily making a lot of money on, on any of these things, um, but there were a number of challenges, shall we say, to the entire recording industry that uh, uh, made life rather difficult for Columbia. First of all, uh, the advent of radio uh, at the beginning of the 1920s People expected that radio was going to knock the recording industry basically for a loop, uh, just, just knock it out. Because look, if you have a radio, um, you can listen to music for free once you buy the radio. You don't have to have all you buy all these records and cart them around and have them in a special cabinet. So everybody thought, many, most people thought that uh, radio was going to kill the recording industry. That didn't happen because recording artists would go on the radio, and then people would go out and buy their records. Uh, they wanted to have, you know, be able to listen to those people whenever they wanted, rather than when the radio stations were broadcast
0: them and I have to say here's, here's something from 1941 that this actually illustrates your point of why I don't want to have to wait another three days before I hear this <laughs> I want to, I want to wear the grooves down on this piece <laughs> here we go them mm-hmm. that got shall get. That's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have. But God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. She Always Takes My Breath Away, Billie Holiday in 1941.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, she comes to the label uh, through one of these uh, great talent scouts, actually a legend in uh, American music, let alone Columbia's history, John Hammond. He had already um, brought Bessie Smith back to the label. She disappeared for a while, but it's tight with Benny Goodman, uh, who's going to marry his sister actually down the line. Count Basie is going to bring to the label, but he was up in Harlem expecting to listen to a singer that he liked a great deal, Um, but she was sick, so it was, you know, 42nd Street, right, Um, you know, go on, kid, you're going to go out there, a kid, and you're going to come back a star. Well, the kid was named Billie Holiday, and she was 17, I think, at the time. And uh, she bowled John Hammond over, and Hammond got her together artistically with uh, Benny Goodman. They actually had a romantic liaison as well uh, with Benny Goodman, and that began Billie Holiday's career. By the time you get to God Bless the Child, she's already a pretty well-established recording artist, and that, I think, you know, is, is her masterpiece. She co-wrote that song, and I think that's the song of hers that's really going to live the
0: longest. And so you mentioned that name, which is uh, a name... Which is clearly critical in the development of Columbia Records, John Hammond. So he would, you would consider him, a talent scout.
1: Well, that that's basically what he was. I mean, he would bring people into the recording studio and and and, uh, and help them get you know lay down the music. But his his great ear was really what made John Hammond so important. He was one of these guys who wanted to break down the barriers between blacks and whites. Um, he helped get. Benny Goodman to integrate his band suggested he had black performers um, bringing black music to the uh, attention of the American people he believed was the greatest social and political reform um, that, that, that he could uh, undertake and he did an amazing job of it
0: and beyond the African Americans uh, given the competition with Victor they, the Columbia certainly landed a hell of a singer with this one it's quarter to three
1: there's no one in the play except you and me
0: so set him up joe i got a little story
1: you ought to know
0: frank sinatra how did they land him
1: well he was playing with the dorsey band the tommy dorsey band and 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 not too happily he was he was he was unsatisfied with the financial arrangements dorsey got you know the lion's share of his the the money and uh, after you know, he, was, he was starting to make it, he was known by the, the connoisseurs. Uh, but Columbia signs him. He, he leaves the Dorsey band um, and he, he signs with Columbia as a solo artist right about at the time when, you know, he's just going to be making it huge in New York City at the Paramount Theater, those famous scenes of the Bobby Soxers rioting over Frank Sinatra. He's really the first teen idol in the history of American recording. Um, a new demographic had come along with the rise of the jukebox in part. And uh, they were just kind of waiting for not a band leader but a singer to be out front and to um, just wow them, particularly the, the, the girls, and Frank Sinatra was that man. So, so Columbia signs him. Unfortunately, right when they do, there was a musician strike, so his early records. His first big hits, actually, are, are re-releases of things that he had recorded with other, with some of the big bands, Harry James in particular, not so much Dorsey, but Harry James. Um, and they had to wait through that strike, get through that strike before um, they could start recording songs like you know One From My Baby. But boy, I mean, Sinatra is a sensation. You know, you think, you think the Beatles were big. Sinatra, they called it Sinatrauma. Um, that he started all of
0: that. But talk about sending chills. Uh, here, here's here's one that has always sent chills up my spine, and uh, you you'll know who it is. The night is bitter. The stars have lost their glitter. The winds grow colder.
1: Suddenly, you're older, and all oh, because of the man that
0: got away. There's a woman who sings about the man who got away. Sinatra did that song as well, and he's often sung about the the girl who got away. It's a great pairing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, Garland wasn't on the label all that long, I mean,
1: compared to, to, to Sinatra. I mean, Columbia recorded almost everybody... <laughs> Who came along, with the exception of maybe the Beatles and, uh, and Caruso, well, a few others, but 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 Garland, Judy Garland, was one of the people who certainly did pass through the Columbia
0: um, um, stable. This next one is for you. You wrote a book about uh, mm-hmm. the gentleman who sang that song. I did, and why? Why was Bob Dylan so important? In fact, it, brings, it really brings me back to the beginning of your book about how before there was the graphophone, life in America sounded different. And it almost feels to me like when Bob Dylan came along, things sounded different. He, he changed the sound of America. Is that an overstatement? Uh, no.
1: Bruce Springsteen said that the you know the, the, the rim shot that starts off that song right the first the first note that struck is Bobby Gregg the drummer going you know bah! and then you hear the, the song open up it's like the it's like getting you know the door to your mind kicked open. Look with Dylan, I mean, there are some people who think that Bob Dylan is of no importance, doesn't matter, um, can't quite get him. Um, but for people who do, and there are a lot of them, he is deeply important and um, always has been and
0: always will be. You're listening to CNN Profiles, and we're talking to the author Sean Lentz uh, who's just written a fantastic history of the 125th anniversary of Columbia Records. Tell me a little bit about yourself, because this profile is, is really more about Columbia Records than it is about mm-hmm. our guest mm-hmm. in, in this case. But tell me a little bit, b- bit about yourself, because you really grew up in a unique position to soak all yeah. this in. Tell, tell us about that. Yes,
1: My dad and his brother owned a bookshop in Greenwich Village on the corner of 8th Street and McDougal, later 8th Street, a little bit across across 8th Street, um, called the 8th Street Bookshop. And it was in its time a kind of literary headquarters for the beat poets and for just writers in general, intellectuals in general, the New York intellectuals. But it was right down the block from where all the music was happening and where the, the, the folk music revival and bo- where Bob Dylan was and Peter, Paul and Mary and all of those. But there was much more going on. I mean, there was there was the literature. There was the poetry. There was the art that was going on. There were the happenings that were going on. There was Julian Beck and Judith Molina. I mean, you name it. Everything that we think of as the 60s was seemed to be either being born there or certainly being nurtured there or at least passing through that little neighborhood. And although we lived in Brooklyn because my mother insisted that we live there, um, she was from Brooklyn. But I, you know, I, I lived a fair amount in Greenwich Village as well. And uh, as a little kid, grew up in all of that. Um, I've said that the one thing that was, you know, strange about it was that I thought all of that was quite normal. I mean, this is a, a, you know, an American upbringing in New York City, you know, where you're seeing all this this, this, this great you know, just a flowering of culture. I don't think anybody really knows why it happens. But there it was. So, um, yes, I was, I was extre- <laughs> extremely lucky to be brought up there. But also it was a neighborhood that had um, – uh, what should we say? It had a past. It was a neighborhood with a past. And um, that past included um, the likes of Walt Whitman and Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay. And uh, so there were ghosts there as well. And I've always thought that, that, was that, that, that the two sides of that were what, what I'm still wor- working out in effect, which is on the one hand, um, all of that wonderful thing, wonderful music, art, poetry, you name it, that was going down when I was coming up. Um, but also the history of the place. Um, and I'm an historian as well um, of, of American politics and culture and society as well as of music. And um, I think between the two of those things, the fascination that I had, I mean, it still haunts me. Those ghosts haunt me and um,
0: that time and place in the 60s haunts me. So that's, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. All right. So we really are profiling this company. Companies have their ups and downs. Was mm-hmm. there any point that Columbia Records was just looking like it was going to go out of business, and somebody mm-hmm. or something came to the rescue.
1: Absolutely, um, a bunch of times, a number of times that occurred. The most dramatic was in the 30s. It had been sold off first to a, a, a radio, a, you know, refrigerator making company, the Majestic Refrigerators. Then it was bought up by a consortium, um, part, made part of a consortium called the American Record Company, um, run by a man named Herbert Yates. Um, and so it was. It, it was combined with a bunch of other labels: Brunswick uh, Records, Vocalion Records. Uh, but it was very much the low label on the totem pole. It was doing really not very much. In fact, by 1935, 36, there wasn't even a Columbia Popular Record Catalog. They didn't even bother to issue one because it was issuing. It was not releasing enough records to justify a catalog. Um, but then, in 1938, William Paley of the um, Columbia Broadcasting System is persuaded by another man um, to try and maybe think if he could think about buying this Columbia Records. Columbia was important because it owned um, its Bridgeport factory um, where they originally made uh, graphophones but now are making records. So it had a very important property even though it was not doing very much within this consortium. Well, you know, um, Paley ended up buying the entire American record company and he took Columbia along and he decided, he's the head of Columbia Broadcasting System, Columbia, that was going to be his label. So Columbia Records really um, survived by a fluke. Um, the depression had taken its toll. It looked like it was going to be nothing. And all of a sudden Bill Paley came along
0: and Columbia Records was in a position to become the, the company that it became. And so uh, as we look at this whole history, and we size up this coffee table size book that you've written,, uh, mm-hmm. There really is no one sound. In fact, the diversity of music is what's really so striking between classical and jazz and country and comedy. And how does a company succeed when when it really does have so many sounds that you can't really identify a a sound to the brand?
1: I think basically it, 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 it put its money down on excellence. It was going to be great in every field that it was in. So that. Like my parents, for example. My mom was a big uh, broad. She loved Broadway musicals. So if you were into Broadway musicals, um, Columbia was, you're going to see all of the best on Columbia from South Pacific on. Huh? But if you're into um, classical music and you really love the sound of the Philadelphia Orchestra, well, the Philadelphia Orchestra, that lush sound of the Philadelphia Orchestra, that and Eugene Normandy is going to be on Columbia Records. Columbia is going to be the best it can be in all of these genres. So there's no one sound to the label as they're, would be with more niche labels, more boutique labels like Motown and, I don't know, Atlantic Records. Um, Columbia came along and tried to, to, try to cover the waterfront and did a very, very good job. And it's done a very, very good job for much of its 125 years.
0: So I guess what we learn from you and from this story is that old cynical adage that we often hear, which is never overestimate the intelligence or the taste of the American people, is wrong.
1: At least in terms of music, yes. Uh, this is the most vibrant musical culture um, um, in the world or uh, certainly in the West. Um, more has come out of it because it is the country that it is. It, it's a country that um, came up out of the curse of slavery um, with African-Americans producing a music unlike anything else. You know, you have Louis Armstrong. Um, but it also has uh, immigrants. It has all of that stuff that, we talk, that we've been talking about um, during this time, which, which came together, and all of them are musical cultures, and uh, Columbia Records just happened to be the company that, uh, that, that, that did the most to turn that into something that we could
0: appreciate every single day. Sean Wilentz, thank you so much for joining us here on CNN Profiles. It was a great delight. Thanks so much. By the way, you can find CNN profiles on our website, cnn.com soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.